Hello, Shirley here. My special guest today is Michael Automanelli, First Vice President and Senior Financial Advisor at Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. Michael is a former tech executive turned financial advisor who now works primarily with technology companies and government contractors. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Shirley. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure having you. Michael, please tell our audience a little more about what you do. Sure. Well, I actually came out of the tech sector. So uh, my background includes uh, working for a startup, uh, small and medium-sized companies, uh, did executive management in a large business, and then uh, ran a company of my own. So, um, you know, my former career has really prepared me very well to help tackle the, the challenges of the small and mid-sized business community. So what I do now is I help business owners uh, who've got companies at all of the different stages of the business life cycle, uh, with everything from obtaining bank and attorney and CPA relationships to implementing uh, the appropriate infrastructure, like employee and executive benefit packages, uh, HR processes, government accounting systems, all the way up to their business exit strategy. So you know, I really like to start working with a business in the early stages that's when really they need the greatest help. Uh, so I can help the company to grow intelligently and efficiently through the stages. So from $5 million in revenue to $15 million in revenue, all the way up to $40 million plus. Excellent. One of the reasons we work so well together, Michael, is that I, as a business development management consultant, serve the same market as you do, and we both enjoy helping companies grow and create value. One of the things I like about what you do specifically is that you take a very strategic, holistic view of financial planning for the owners and managers of your client companies, cradle to grave. Our topic today is exit planning. So I'd like to start with some definitions. Exactly what is an exit plan? Well, you know, you really most likely you started this business to be your own boss. And, and to build wealth for you and your family. So your exit plan is how are you going to eventually monetize this business that you're building? Yes. Why else would you put in 60-hour work weeks or 15 years, right? So tell me what a plan typically consists of. Well, your exit plan is simply, you know, your magic number um, and the roadmap on how to get there. So, you know, we can usually come at it from either direction. Um, I've got my older clients who are in their 50s and 60s, and, you know, they tend to have an idea of what type of income they're going to need in retirement. So we'll start there and then reverse engineer that up to a company sale price. Uh, my younger clients in their 30s and 40s, uh, they tend to already have a sale price in mind, so like $20 million or $30 million in revenue. So we'll start with that, and then I can show them, you know, what kind of retire- uh, retirement income is that going to correlate to uh, after the sale with transaction fees and taxes, et cetera. So is this plan something that is written, or is it just discussed? It could be a little bit of both. You know, first it's discussed, and then it makes its way onto paper uh, one way or another. You know, from the business standpoint, it might be reflected in your one, three, and and five-year strat plan. From the personal standpoint, I'd say the financial part would be reflected in a comprehensive financial plan that we would put together, uh, capturing the numbers from our exit planning discussion. And then the succession legacy part would be executed through their estate plan. And what do you mean by succession or legacy? You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you've got into this business to build wealth for you and your family. 
So whereas some owners are looking for the simple life, you know, they just want to be able to provide for them and their spouses, um, others are thinking about the next generation. So with enough money, we can set up things like family foundations and dynasty trusts in their name, and these things will go on in perpetuity to help provide for their children and their grandchildren. Why do businesses need an exit plan? Well, you know, as in most things, failing to plan is planning to fail. So, you know, this thing can veer off the beaten path very quickly if you don't keep your eye on the end goal. Um, And that requires you to have a tangible, planned out end goal. I use that same principle when I'm talking to my clients about growing their businesses. In the beginning, sales and marketing might be very ad hoc, kind of shoot from the hip. But if they want sustainable growth, there has to be a set of goals and a disciplined approach to meeting those goals. But what I hear from some of my clients, Mike, regarding exit planning is there are so many uncertainties in starting and running a small business. How can I possibly develop a plan on how I'm going to sell in, say, 10 years? Yeah, well, you know, considering the 8A program, it's only nine years, and uh, 10 years is a bit long. I'd say, you know, most of the companies I work with are already a ways along in the program or only have a few years left before they're going to size out of their small business standard uh, based on their NAICS. So I'd really say most of our exit plans are for a runway of about less than five years. Now, most people procrastinate. So why do business owners need one now? Why can't they just take a wait-and-see attitude and kind of see how things go? Well, you know, the sooner you know where you're going, the the less wrong turns and and backtracking you're going to make along the way. Early on, it's good to know your plan so you can make certain infrastructure decisions along the way, like, you know, do I hire a sitting CFO or do I use an outsourced CFO, a sitting HR person or HR consultant, et cetera. Or do I hire a director of business development or continue managing the effort myself? Can you give us an example of how you approach this topic with your clients? Yeah, well, I'd say, you know, I I tend to come across a lot of the same mistakes. Um, And, uh, you know, so a few of them that I tend to see are, one is is being infrastructure heavy. So you have these contractors who came out of a Booz or a Deloitte, and, you know, they're used to process and infrastructure, and they figure, you know, they should build their business the same way. Um, not realizing, you know, they're a $5 million company right now. So they're doing $5 million in revenue. You know, they're paying a sitting CFO, and they've got Dell Tech, and they could just as easily been DCA compliant with QuickBooks and have a good virtual CFO. So their overhead is way too high, and it's either cutting into their margins or it's affecting their rates, which are going to affect their win rate. Uh, you know, other issues I see are contract mix, you know, so having too high a percentage of set-aside work, uh, a company that's doing $30 million in revenue with all 8A contracts or small business set-asides, uh, it's virtually worthless, you know, because there are very few companies that can acquire that company. Um, another one I see is the, the too many chefs, right? So I've engaged with companies that have had four or five principals uh, when we met, and I told them outright, there's it, just too many chefs. <laughs> so it's just better to deal with some of these issues sooner than later. Let's elaborate on a few of the points that you made. Many small business owners are not aware that small business set-aside contracts have little market value. Correct, yeah. Um, Small business and and 8A set-aside contracts, uh, they build cash flow but not value. 
So the whole idea of those programs is to get you started in the industry so that you can eventually compete in the full and open space. Uh, but what we see is that many contractors either become complacent or they just never quite learn how to compete in the full and open space. So, you know, the rule of thumb is about 4x for acquisitions. So if you're doing, say, $20 million in revenue, it's going to take a company of about $80 million or so to have the means to be able to acquire you. And so obviously that business would not be a small business or an 8A at that point and cannot take over those contracts. And I might add, Michael, that I see businesses being faced with this dilemma a lot, and that is uh, if they have a socioeconomic certification, they qualify for set-asides, so business development is easier, and they don't develop the chops to compete when their certification ends. And many are reluctant to invest in business development activities to get their companies to the next level or the founder does the business development. If he or she is successful and the company wins a contract, now they jump on contract delivery side and there's no business development taking place anymore. So there's peaks and valleys. How do you advise your clients about investing in growth and going after opportunities that create real market value for the company? Yeah, I mean, so there's multiple ways to to approach this. Um, I kind of walk them through the uh, various different types of BD scenarios. Um, So, you know, firstly, they could just bring in a full-time BD person, right? There's the outsourced model. We can uh, go after an outsourced BD person or an outsourced BD agency. Um, There's more, you know, like what you're doing, like a player coach model. Someone will kind of come in, show you how to do it, and hopefully teach you how to do it so you can go on to, to, you know, eventually do it yourself. Most importantly, you know, just as with financial planning, business development planning is crucial, right? If you have a well-researched, well-thought-out plan for how you're going to bring in more revenue, you're more likely to execute and and see results uh, rather than just submitting more proposals or depending on luck. Um, but you know, really, this is your more your, your your area of specialty than mine. Yes, and you're absolutely right, Michael. Um, I see these factors come into play in my practice. Thinking, planning, executing, and constantly evaluating your business results are best practices. We need to take a break. I'm talking to Michael Ottomanelli, first vice president and senior financial advisor of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management about creating market value and eventually exiting your business. When we come back, we'll discuss the unique characteristics of the government marketplace. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Growth Masters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davy Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping you grow your federal contracting business. We continue now with today's discussion on exit planning and whether it's still possible in these turbulent times to achieve your goals as a GovCon owner ready to cash out. Joining Shirley today is Michael Ottomanelli, 
First VP and Senior Advisor to the Tech and GovCon sectors for Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. Welcome back. Michael, what are some of the unique characteristics of the federal marketplace that contractors should keep in mind as they are contemplating an exit? So government contracting company sale pricing um, really begins with a multiple of EBITDA. So a company that's doing, say, $15 million in revenue and 10% margins would begin with a multiple of about 4x, which would put them at a, a potential sale price of $1.5 million EBITDA times the 4x multiple, which is about a $6 million sale price. So that's kind of the starting point. Uh, then any additional value drivers would be assessed, and they would use those to either kind of move the needle um, up or down from there. So, for example, they'll look at what is that margin percentage? Are we doing uh, 10% margins, 15% margins, and so forth? Is our work uh, prime work or sub work? You know, what, what sector are we in? Is it a commoditized sector like help desk or something hot like cyber? Uh, what agencies are we in? EPA, DHS, or, um, you know, Intel is very, very sought after right now. Uh, like we talked about earlier, contract type. You know, is it full and open work or is it set-aside work? Um, and then contract mix. You know, what, what types of contracts do we have? Um, but when are, they, when are they up for recompete? Where are we at in, in a five-year contract? You know, things like that. So there's actually about 10 or so value drivers that they look at and then they use those to kind of move the number left or right from that starting multiple. What constraints have you seen in professional services companies where the principles are billable? Mm. So, yeah, in my experience, you know, for each principle that is between around 80 to 100% billable, uh, that GovCon business will plateau at about $5 million in revenue per principle. Uh, so $5 million in revenue for a sole business owner, $10 million for two principals, et cetera. Um, this idea, it was really driven home recently. I was introduced to a GovCon that had four principals who were all billable. And, uh, you know, after having multiple meetings with them and running through all the numbers based on doing what they were doing, uh, we did determine that they would likely plateau around $20 million in revenue, $5 million per principal. So it was a very interesting exercise. But really, so at that point, though, you know, the business owner or owners, you know, they have to make a conscious decision. Um, do we want to just go ahead and, and try to go to market at that point or do what we call a pivot, and which means change the way they do business development in order to continue to grow and, and break through that ceiling? I've heard this described as the founder's dilemma. There's a great book by that name by Noam Wasserman. He describes the dilemma as king or rich. <laughs> That's the paradigm. Do you want to have power and remain small or expand your empire, delegate authority, and take your business to the next level? 80% of the founders say they want to be rich, of course, <laughs> but very few of them actually follow through on the changes that must be made. So, Mike, let's go back to the plan. How often should one be updated? I'd say usually, you know, about once a year. You know, what happens is once the government fiscal winds down in September, I'll typically meet with my companies in like the October, November timeframe. And, you know, we'll assess how do we do for the year and then, you know, reassess our exit plan based on how we did and what do we see coming down the pike for the next fiscal. 
what are some of the factors that would necessitate a plan to be reassessed? We'll look at things like contract wins or losses along the way. Uh, has there been any kind of uh, change in ownership? Um, or sometimes just, you know, uh, poor health, you know, will be something that we'll have to reassess around. Hmm. How will having an exit plan benefit business owners later on? You know, later on, it's good to know your plan um, so that we can make advantageous financial decisions, like uh, setting up a residence in Florida to avoid paying state income tax on a sale or, you know, putting some shares in a trust prior to the sale so we can save capital gains tax on a portion of the sale. Um, For instance, so, you know, with the Florida thing above, you know, to be legit in the eyes of the IRS, you really need to do this about a year in advance of your company's sale. Or um, for trust planning, you know, the, the, the less the company is worth when we put the shares into the trust, the, the less taxes we'll pay upon the sale. So the sooner we figure out this is something we want to do, the, you know, the better from a tax planning perspective. What is your role in that? How do you help? Well, you know, I work with the principal to understand their specific circumstance, and then I help them to lay out a plan that's intelligent and achievable. Um, and then I hold their hand through the whole process of executing and then eventually realizing that plan. Michael, we've done this podcast before, and we received very good response to it. What updates do you have for us today? The number one thing I get asked these days is, uh, you know, how is COVID affecting the M&A market, and, and how should I plan my exit around it? You know, coming into 2020, the GovCon M&A market was very active, and then COVID hit towards the end of Q1. I think initially, you know, no one really knew what to think of it since it was so new. So we just kind of went about our business initially and and continued to close the deals we were already working on. And then, you know, when it became apparent that this thing was much bigger than anyone could have imagined, uh, we started to see some interesting trends. Um, Firstly, you know, M&A activity started to diverge a little bit, whereas uh, PE firms were still very active, uh, but a lot of the larger corporate GovCon buyers were really kind of happy to sit on the sideline for a while to let things play out a little bit. I think trend two, as, as walking the halls, you know, was essentially shut down. What was already a very difficult and competitive industry got even more so. So as it became even more challenging to grow organically, uh, more companies started looking towards uh, an inorganic acquisition approach uh, to the point where we had much more buyers out there than we did sellers. Uh, that's probably still the case today. Uh, that combined with the Small Business Runway Extension Act, uh, the new five-year look back, which is up from three years, on business revenues relative to their size standard, uh, gives a little bit more leeway for buyers to buy larger small businesses without immediately sizing out of their size standard. And then I'd say probably, finally, uh, you know, flat became the new growth. So whereas previously, you know, you really wanted to try and show a nice arc and increasing sales over the last couple of years, you know, a few businesses were able to really put a lot of new opportunities into the pipelines uh, this year. So it really became all about closing the opportunities that you already had. I saw many of these same things happening, Michael. Normal business development processes were disrupted, procurement rules changed, and opportunities were pushed to the right due to the disruption of all the government workers being sent home to work. 
However, the government has not slowed down its overall spending. If anything, it has increased. So I've been advising my clients that the approach might be different. We're talking over Zoom rather than in person, but budgets have to be spent and projects have to move forward. Don't lean back, lean forward. However, given these disruptions in the market, what has been the impact on exit plans? Well, you know, for those who are already thinking about an exit in the next, say, 6 to 12 months, um, you know, not very much. As I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of buyers out there. Uh, Demand is high, and uh, multiples are looking pretty good right now. So, um, you know, if you're you're trailing 12 and 24-month financials, haven't really been affected that much yet. And a lot of my businesses have been able to take advantage of the PPP program to shore up their balance sheets. Um, so, you know, for those who are looking a little further out, we should have a discussion, right? It's, you know, we need to take a look at your revenue trajectory, uh, your backlog and your pipeline, and, you know, see how it's been affected by COVID and, and then make some strategic decisions. So, you know, not a deal breaker by any means, but we just want to make sure we're being smart about the timing so that we can maximize your sale price. Now, some contractors have done very well with the government's extra spending related to COVID. How do you look at those, what might be temporary increases in revenue from a valuation perspective? I don't think it's really that much different. You know, before, you would always have some work or um, some one-off contracts and things like that that may not be replicated the following year. So, you know, when we head into the M&A process, we would sort of have just an explanation and say, hey, you know, by the way, this was a one-off or, or um, you know, we don't anticipate, you know, this revenue to, to, to keep going the year following, you know, like it did this year. So um, it's really not that much different. It's, we'll certainly take it, right? We'll count it. We'll take the extra revenue. But we might have to explain, you know, the following year if there is going to be a drop-off. The other related area, like I mentioned earlier, is the PPP. So, it's not like, I mean, it's, you know, all of a sudden you have this extra money that appeared on, on companies' balance sheets. It does need to be explained. But what I've seen in the few deals that we've done this year is it's an extra step. We account for it in, during the M&A process. So it'll be an extra part of the discussion and say, okay, you know, this amount of cash on the balance sheet is from the PPP this much will go towards operating cash, this much will go. So it gets allotted and explained during the process. No one has a crystal ball, but what do you foresee for the government contracting marketplace in 2021? Yes, it should be interesting. Like I said, right now, M&A activity is very high. Uh, There's a lot of demand. I think that what we're seeing is an urgency to try and close deals prior to the election, because obviously there'll just be a lot of volatility and, and a lot of uncertainty around the election. And then we really just kind of anticipate things picking right back up, you know, where they left off after the election. Now, the difference being, we don't really expect a lot of difference in the amount of government spend, but certainly historically, the different administrations have their favorite sectors that they like to spend on, right? So the Republicans are a little bit more uh, DOD-heavy, Democrats a little bit more clean energy and so forth. So once we get through the election, we see what's the administration going to look like. We'll have a better idea of which sectors a lot of that spend will be pushed towards.
Michael, as we wrap up, what would you say is the biggest mistake small federal contractors make when planning for an exit? Well, you know, I'd say the most important conclusion that, you know, one could really draw from this discussion is that the biggest mistake would be to simply not have one. (laughs) I would agree with that. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Very informative for federal contractors of all sizes. Well, it was a pleasure being here, and uh, thanks for having me, Shirley. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Michael, he can be reached at Michael underscore Automanelli at ml.com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelta Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president and founder of Skelta Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's skeletomarket.com, with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.